ACRM is 100 years old this year. Join us in Atlanta this October for our 100th anniversary annual conference. The largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation research conference in the world will feature hundreds of instructional courses, symposia and papers and posters, and an expo hall with over 100 exhibitors and sponsors. Go to acram.org slash register. According to the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention, there are more than 611 traumatic brain injury-related hospitalizations and 190 TBI-related deaths per day. These figures do not include traumatic brain injuries that are only treated in the emergency department, primary care, urgent care, or those that never seek treatment. Quick question, which do you think is larger? The number of years since the last ACRM publication documenting criteria for mild traumatic brain injury, or the number of years that Dr. Wendy McGee has been working to validate a music therapy assessment tool. Stay tuned for this and more in this episode of The RehabCast, the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine and the archives of PMNR. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. Today on the RehabCast, we have a special episode with authors who span the full spectrum of traumatic brain injury care. Our journey starts with the first guest, who will discuss the updated mild traumatic brain injury criteria, the evidence behind them, and the implications for diagnosis, management, and research. Then, our second guest will review a unique tool for evaluating severe traumatic brain injuries and disorders of consciousness with music therapy. I hope you will find these conversations as insightful as I did. On to the first article, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine Diagnostic Criteria for Mild Traumatic Brain Injury by Dr. Noah Silverberg. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'm a neuropsychologist by background. I'm an associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and I've been chairing the mild TBI task force of the ACRM by ISIG for the past few years now. Today, we're talking about an update that you all have done over the last few years, actually. And I'm kind of curious, if we were to roll back the clock, it sounds like from what I'm, I've am i read, this first came out in 1993. And obviously, there's been a lot of changes since then. But I'm curious, when you opened up to start this process, what were the things you were hoping to target or address or improve upon that 1993 publication? Yeah, like you said, it's been a while. This update is probably already 20 years overdue. And I know something that we and others have been thinking about for some time, but finally worked up the nerve to actually undertake it. It was a multi-year process and and quite an involved one, as I'm sure we'll get into. But we and I think others in the field shared some frustrations about the 1993 ACRM diagnostic criteria for mild TBI, as helpful as it was for advancing the field, both in terms of clinical care and research. We became sort of increasingly aware of some shortcomings, uh, which other updates from different professional organizations over the years addressed some and others less so. And we tried to pull that all together and incorporate 
everything we've learned about this injury over the past few decades, all that research evidence and try to get the field onto the same page here and using one definition. I think that's really great. And then I want to take a moment too for our listeners that may be less familiar with traumatic brain injury terminology. We're talking about mild. And if we were to scale the clock back or look back what were the things that went into that diagnostic criterion just for mild? Or maybe a better way to ask this, what is a more moderate or severe injury? Can you kind of outline that spectrum for us so that we can zoom back in on what mild is and what we're going to be talking about? Sure. I just want to preface that with a couple of statements. One is that the diagnostic criteria that we are putting forward here can really be used for traumatic brain injury on the whole. We have a further sort of qualification in there for what differentiates mild for moderate severe, but we really view that as a temporary placeholder and are aware that the field is moving towards a more sophisticated injury classification system and away from these overly simplistic mild, moderate, severe categories. So let me start with that. Traditionally, what differentiates a, a mild to moderate severe and have been carried forward in the diagnostic criteria, as I say, for now as, as a placeholder. With mild, we're talking about a relatively brief period of loss of consciousness, if any. So if somebody gets knocked out, it's for less than 30 minutes, typically more on the span of seconds to a few minutes. If there's post-traumatic amnesia, people after the impact don't remember the impact itself or moments or, or some period after, that also is on the relatively brief end of the spectrum, up to 24 hours, but again, typically much less than that. So if a traumatic brain injury results in more prolonged loss of consciousness or post-traumatic amnesia, that is what typically sends it into the moderate severe category. And I guess the other kind of caveat I want to share is that really we're talking about the severity of the initial injury here and not necessarily outcome. So the qualifier mild makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we're well aware that many people uh, can have persistent symptoms and, and disability long after a quote-unquote mild TBI. So it, it can be a bit misleading that way. I think that's an excellent point to make when we talk about it as clinicians and put them into whatever categories we ultimately end up involving this into, there's forever going to be a category of less severe and more severe in some form or fashion and how we communicate that with patients that may have very impairing symptoms and situations that are affecting their daily life categorizing it in that mild category can definitely lead to some frustrations and distance in that therapeutic relationship, which we ideally avoid. Let's run the clock forward. So from reading the manuscript, it sounds like the group started meeting in 2018 and consisted of a whole group of individuals. And I'm curious, kind of walk us through that process of building this next one and what it looked like and who was involved. Yeah, so from within... The American Congress of Rehab Medicine Biasic Mild TBI Task Force, we put together a group of people who were interested in really the nuts and bolts of this project. So we consider that to be our, our working group. And that was an interdisciplinary group of people from various backgrounds, not just neuropsychology like Grant Iverson, my co-lead and I, but others from neurology and PM&R and 
occupational therapy and, and so on. So that was our core group. From there, you know, as we started undertaking the evidence searching, we realized, kind of confirming our anticipation, that there wouldn't be answers to every question we had and enough evidence to guide all the decisions we'd need to make. And so we needed to engage a group of experts and go about a consensus process to sort of fill those gaps in, in the evidence space. So that was the next step in inviting an international interdisciplinary group of clinician scientists, primarily from the United States, but uh, with decent international representation, to agree to sit on this panel and review drafts of the diagnostic criteria and vote and provide feedback in what we were hoping would take a couple of years and ended up taking a couple more years. Yeah, I think there was a pandemic that probably derailed some of your plans in the process. So you have this group. And the other thing that I really appreciated from looking at your process is you also had public stakeholders evolve and participate in this. And it looked like you had 68 different individuals and 23 separate organizations that helped keep you a whole lot more transparent and less I don't know. We get stuck in the weeds sometimes with three-letter acronyms when we talk about this stuff, and it helps you kind of stay a lot more true to what you're trying to get out there. Yeah, and open to diverse perspectives, I think, was the other intention there. Wonderful. So let's move into the actual criterion that you outlined in this document to help further define what is mild traumatic brain injury. From what it looks like, there are six different criteria. And if we can unbox these one by one, or if you want to try and clump them together, totally up to you. Uh, happy to go through them. So the first criterion is that there has to have been a plausible mechanism of injury. So that is the initial check that, in fact, there was some transfer of energy through the brain, you know, cause the brain to move within the skull with enough force to potentially cause a brain injury. So it's just kind of a reminder that that should always be the starting point. And sometimes what we see clinically is that surprisingly, in some ways, it, it can get missed. You know, a patient shows up with these nonspecific symptoms, headache, difficulty concentrating, and so on, and they're asked, well, did you hit your head recently as like an explanation for why those symptoms might be there? And there's a number of problems and challenges with that approach. But I think the most important thing is start by confirming, in fact, there was a potential cause for traumatic brain injury here. The second is to look for signs of brain injury that are observable, the most obvious being loss of consciousness, but uh, relatively subtle ones like signs of confusion, a person's asking the same question over and over, unsure of what just happened to them that sort of thing. Post-traumatic amnesia, so a gap in their memory around the time of impact or, or it's after. And then some other neurological signs like being uh, unsteady on their feet when they go to stand after uh, an impact. We often see that in slow motion uh, video replay following big collisions in sports, for example. Um, and then the third criterion is acute symptoms. So here we're talking about physical symptoms 
like headaches and, and dizziness, as well as cognitive and emotional symptoms, none of which are particularly specific or unique to traumatic brain injury. And so we try to not have the diagnosis rest entirely on these symptoms, but do think it's important to consider these symptoms, at least to rule in a suspected or, or possible mild traumatic brain injury. For criterion four, we're looking at clinical examination lab findings, which is something relatively new that has not been a part of previous diagnostic criteria for mild TBI. So it's become clear over the last couple of decades that there are some pretty simple clinical examination maneuvers and tests that can be helpful for establishing a diagnosis, tests of cognition or thinking skills, as well as balance and ocular motor function. Uh, we also found some evidence for a potential role of, of blood tests in diagnosing mild TBI, although not yet clinically available and, and still certainly some uncertainties left to be resolved with further research. But we wanted to create a, a place for them so that the criteria will live on as that evidence comes in over the next few years as we anticipate it will. Criterion 5 is about neuroimaging. So neuroimaging is not a requirement to diagnose mild traumatic brain injury. It's often not clinically indicated, and so not done. But when performed, and it shows evidence of a structural lesion in the brain that is good enough, has evidence that a mild traumatic brain injury has occurred. And then criterion six is really trying to point out how a lot of the signs and symptoms can be caused or at least exacerbated by other things. For example, you know, acute alcohol or drug intoxication may explain why somebody can't fully remember everything that's happened to them. And so we really want clinicians and researchers to be mindful of this possibility and take that extra step of considering and ruling out confounding factors before arriving at a diagnosis of mild traumatic brain injury. Well said. And when you were meeting as a group to talk about these, were some of these a little bit harder to thread the needle on or spurred on more discussion about whether to include or how much to include? And I'm a little bit curious, what were the pieces that really required a lot of group dynamics in order to achieve a consensus on? There were several, and you can see the evidence of some of those controversies and discussions and the lengthy supplementary material where you see the diagnostic criteria going through iterations and us attempting to give feedback to our expert panel about where there was agreement and less agreement and how to try to get on the same page. A couple of areas that were relatively controversial was the inclusion of, of blood-based biomarkers, blood tests. So some felt that the available evidence was compelling enough to warrant their conclusion, others that, you know, we still need to learn more and it's premature, and others that, yes, e even though the research evidence points to their clinical utility, they're actually not yet available in most places in the world, and so why do we have them included here? So there was that. Also, a lot of discussion about whether a patient with any structural abnormalities on neuroimaging should fall within the definition of mild traumatic brain injury. Some viewed that 
as indicating a more severe brain injury. So, you know, elsewhere along the spectrum, but not within what we would call mild. So we had some good back and forth about that actually added a question specifically about that in the last round. The stakeholder feedback was also really helpful there, but eventually we're able to get pretty high level of agreement on it. Having gone through this process for a few different topic areas, I find my own understanding of these diagnoses or whatever you're looking into becomes so much more complex having gone through this process than I ever thought it was going to be entering the process. And I'm, I don't know if you had that experience as well. 100%. There were a few other things that I'm curious to get your take on, and you can speak to this as a person on the panel or... I don't know if you want to speak from the the formal position of the whole panel that helped put this together or not, but you do have a whole section paragraph talking about how the ACRM diagnostic criteria considers a concussion to be a mild traumatic brain injury. And I know that has been something, whether it's patients or other clinicians or team members, is sometimes a really sticky subject. And I'm curious to get your perspective on that. This was definitely an area going in where we expected there to be a wide range of opinions. And in fact, prior, our our first publication as a group was sort of an initial survey to just kind of check the temperature of, of some of these issues. And so we knew going in, this would be a difficult one to achieve consensus on. Historically, Concussion has been the preferred term in certain settings like pediatrics and sports medicine where mild TBI tends to be more so used in civilian trauma and military settings, even when we're talking about the same injury. So there's the sort of conventions we had to deal with as well. In the end, there was a high level of agreement that a concussion is a mild TBI when neuroimaging, like a CT scan, is done and there are uh, abnormalities evident, we would call that a concussion anymore. Uh, it would still be a mild TBI, uh, but no longer a concussion. So that's what most people felt comfortable in differentiating the two. I think it also has implications, like we were speaking about earlier, the language that we use with patients. Some favor the use of concussion because it doesn't sound as scary, perhaps, as likely to result in long-lasting problems, but some dislike it for the same reason that it may trivialize what can be a serious injury. I have found that same issue to be tricky, and sometimes patients even request certain terminology in my notes based on the aims and goals that they're shooting for. So, someone who may be really, really interested in getting back to that thing that they love and want to potentially downplay the symptoms they're experiencing are far more likely to want concussion as the terminology I'm using with them, where others that are quite debilitated by what's going on and are trying to impart that onto the you know, school they're working with or the employer they're working with prefer the more formal terminology because it seems to carry more weight and try to avoid that term concussion if they're trying to advocate for adaptations and different things in the setup that they're trying to get back to. Yeah, I've been a part of some very similar conversations. 
I'm also curious, I don't know if you talked about it specifically, but when you think about mild TBI or concussion, do you as a provider kind of think about this as an acute process that is there and eventually hopefully gets better? Or is this more an acute injury that has some chronic implications? And how do you describe that continuum of care for something like this that occurs from one thing, but may or may not have implications down the line years after? Yeah, there's a great deal of variability, both in terms of how people are initially affected by the injury, and then also the the pace and trajectory of recovery. So our focus on the project we're talking about today was really on more consistent and reliable recognition of, you know, whether there has been a mild traumatic brain injury or not. And it's, I think, an outstanding question. There are certain organizations or structures or even healthcare providers, whether it's a national socialized system or a given insurance plan, that want to put traumatic brain injury, mild TBI, concussion in this, you only get a certain amount of time to get better for this acute injury and try to ignore some of the longer term downstream effects that can happen. And I know there's been other movements and things. It's outside of this paper completely about moving this into more of a chronic disease description versus a simple acute process. And the analogy for me to this is stroke. Like, yes, you had a stroke and it was one thing and it affected this area of your brain. But now that it's happened, there are still ramifications lifelong from that point forward. It's like that watershed moment. There's a before and there's an after. And that's my own standpoint, but I'm curious if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, it sort of gets at the difference between referring to a mild TBI in past tense as an event rather than sort of present tense as an injury that you continue to deal with. Yeah, I don't know that we have a right answer there other than sort of recognizing that there is a a wide spectrum of recovery. And when we try to take sort of group level statistics, you know, this percentage of people recover by a certain period, there are always going to be outliers and people who don't fit that mold. You said that better than I could have. So thank you for saying that. I'm also curious to get your take on approach I've had myself. So inevitably, as a brain injury board certified person, I see a fair number of these individuals that have suffered various levels of traumatic brain injury. And there's inevitably a subset of patients I see that never quite meet the criterion for a mild traumatic brain injury, whether that's there's not that well-defined mechanism that happened, or they don't carry some of those other clinical findings or associated symptoms that seem to build the whole picture, or it's explained by other means. Sometimes I'll document these patients have report of head trauma, or they report to me with these symptoms that they attribute following an event. But I don't have a great way to designate these individuals that don't quite meet these criterium into a something else. And I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that or how you potentially approach that yourself in your own practice. So it it sounds like it it should be a binary decision, whether there was a brain injury or not in some suspected head trauma event. But 
turns out it can be pretty hard to tell much of the time for, for reasons that you do. So one of the things that we included in the diagnostic criteria is what we refer to as a suspected mild TBI, which means that somebody did not clearly meet all the diagnostic criteria, but there was some evidence of a mild traumatic brain injury, enough so that you're not comfortable saying, nope, there was no brain injury here. So there still will be cases you'll come across where, where there was a head trauma, but clearly no brain injury or some nonspecific symptoms that are better explained by something else. What we're talking about here with the suspected mild TBI category is where sort of an attempt to operationalize that clinical suspicion of, I think this probably was a mild TBI, but there's just not enough here to hang my hat on be certain about it. So we're, we hope that this can help with that sort of clinical scenario where it's less than crystal clear, but also with research so that there's consistency in either including or not including folks in this category in research studies, depending on what we're trying to do, right? If it's more about characterizing recovery and drawing inferences about you know, the general population, all people who get this injury, then an inclusive approach makes sense. But, you know, if you're trying to validate some new blood test or medical device as being sensitive to picking up the effects of mild TBI, you want to be sure that the patients in your research study definitely had a mild TBI, and probably you don't want to include these folks with uh, quote-unquote suspected. Yeah, I really appreciated the discussion in that area because as much as we want to help people and figure everything out as best we can, there's inevitably some that don't quite read the textbook all the way and don't quite fit into the mold. Where do you see this interest group moving forward? You've kind of hinted at you now have the framework of criterium to then add to, but what do you view as the next immediate steps that you and your colleagues are working on? Well, our next immediate steps, I guess, are really twofold. One is validation. So we've done our best to put together a set of diagnostic criteria that are informed by evidence and, and expert opinion, but they have not been rigorously field tested. And I think that's an important step going forward. So to support that work, we're also trying to create a structured interview or implementation tool to get consistency in how clinicians are, are querying for signs and symptoms and how they're coding the patient's responses to those questions and so on to further standardize. The other major area we're moving forward now is with just knowledge translation efforts. So we know that we can't just sit back and expect that the field will adopt these criteria in all settings and all sort of contexts, but rather that proactive efforts are, are going to be required, right? So we have even anticipation of this paper coming out Members of our working group have been presenting at various research conferences, brain injury-related, various health disciplines being targeted there. But that can't be it. Uh, I think you know we're also continuing to brainstorm about how we can increase awareness through ongoing continual medical education, 
and even potentially policy changes that really incentivize use of these criteria in clinical practice and research. I think that's a great point. And even the more we've talked about it, I I wonder if there's going to be a point in the coming years where we even move away, as you've hinted, from that mild, moderate, and severe and do some of the other classifications that you've seen for like heart failure, for example, where there's classes, it's a class one, two, or three, or a whole spectrum of things that kind of take away, it still describes the scenario, but it doesn't add some of those verbal monikers that carry weight that we don't necessarily need them to. Efforts are underway. I don't know how much I could share other than uh, stay tuned for late January 2024 for the outcome of the National Institutes of Health Initiative on exactly that. Oh, leaving us wanting more. Couldn't have ended it better. Let's move into the lightning round questions. First one, tell me about a piece of good advice that you've received. The one that stands out, especially as it relates to this project, is perfect is the enemy of good. So we could have gone on endlessly tinkering, and and we did a fair bit, you know, getting really hung up on on word choices and grammar and and formatting and things of that sort, but would have never seen this through to completion. So that's advice that I took to heart is, you know, they've, they've got to be good. But if you continue to hold perfection as the standard, it'll never get done. I have heard that before, and it's a advice that's definitely worth sharing. Next question. If I were to visit kind of the community where you live, what is the thing that you would recommend I do or place to eat or activity? <laughs> yeah, there's lots going on in, in Vancouver, Canada. You know, others may have seen some of that highlighted in the 2010 Olympics that we, we hosted here, perhaps otherwise. Um, I think some of my favorite things about the city include, you know, access to the outdoors. We've got both beaches and, and terrific mountains for hiking, something I particularly enjoy. We've got a great food and microbrewery scene. So if you came to visit, we would probably hop on a bike and go for a tour of a city's best microbrews. Very enticing. Very enticing. Next question. You happen to be visiting the ACRM conference in Atlanta this year, and you find $40 in your suitcase you didn't know was there before. What would you do with those $40? So I've cleared customs and immigration by now. Uh, Yeah. Okay. I would probably seek out Ron Seal and buy him a beer or two. So as some of your listeners are probably aware, um, Dr. Seal heads the ACRM Evidence and Practice Committee and uh, just appreciated his mentorship and shepherding us through the rigorous peer review from, from that group and ultimate endorsement by the Board of Governors of the ACRM for these new diagnostic criteria. He was pretty instrumental in that. And I've uh, shared my thank yous, but uh, buying them a beer or two would, would feel nice. Last lightning round question. What advice would you tell yourself at age 22 if you could travel back in time? <laughs> uh, I'll keep it to professional matters there. And that would be probably to work in a at least somewhat less controversial area. 
yeah, both research and clinical practice, and, and you know what constitutes a mild traumatic brain injury, something that you know many people have opinions about, and uh, only somewhat overlapping. So to think that we could come in and get widespread consensus across the field was a bit of a, a crazy idea. Well, I want to thank you personally for at least shouldering part of the effort in this process, because I think you've put together a really great consensus statement. And I look forward to see the comments and things that will continue this conversation going forward. And I will be sure to stay tuned for, you said, January 2024 on what may come next. So thanks for everything you've done. Any closing questions for me? I've been grilling you with things and it's your chance to ask me something. Um, are you coming to Vancouver anytime soon? <laughs> uh, no plans at the moment, but I'll definitely be sure to drop you a line if I do. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on and the opportunity to discuss this project. Uh, hopefully, you know, word gets out and people start using it. Thanks for being on the rehab cast and putting together these updated criteria for mild traumatic brain injury. I am curious if our listeners have thoughts about the possibility of changing the mild, moderate, and severe categories into designations that may carry less stigma. Now let's transition from mild traumatic brain injuries to disorders of consciousness and on to the second article. Validations of the Music Therapy Assessment Tool for Awareness in Disorders of Consciousness with the Coma Recovery Scale Revised with Ph.D. Wendy McGee. Here she is to introduce herself. Thanks so much, Bill, and thanks very much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I'm currently working as a uh, music therapy professor in Philadelphia at Temple University in the USA, but I have a long background working in rehabilitation, brain injury rehabilitation as a clinician, largely based in the UK, where I worked for just over two decades as a clinician researcher, and that's really where the background of this work began. Out of curiosity, kind of talking us through that transition over to the U.S. and getting to the point where you have this idea to do this type of paper, I'm curious, what are the things that led up to the idea? Well, only 32 years work, Bill. That's all it was. This has been an ongoing piece of research for the whole of my career. It started in about 1990, working clinically with these very profoundly disabled adults with acquired brain injury who had very complex needs, motor impairments, communication impairments, difficulties with arousal, definitely cognitive impairments after this very sort of profound brain injury incidents, often behavioural challenges and often sensory impairments as well. So music therapy was an integrated part of the rehabilitation team And everybody could see that it worked, but we didn't really know how it worked, why it worked. And as a clinician, as a newly qualified clinician, for me, the challenge was being able to articulate what the important outcomes were. And that was really the development of this very simple assessment or evaluation tool at the time, which then over a period of 14 years got refined through work with hundreds and hundreds of patients. So well over a 1,000 clinical contacts, this this, uh, clinical tool got refined. And then in about 2006, we started researching it. And we did the first 
standardization study of the MatterDoc to assess its validity and reliability, which had all good outcomes. And we validated it against another measure of awareness, the sensory modality assessment rehabilitation technique, the SMART, which had also been developed at the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability, where I worked. That was all great. However, just as we were finishing up our research, this wonderful systematic review came out of all the measures of disorders for awareness in disorders of consciousness. And the criterion standard was named as the Coma Recovery Scale Revised, not the SMART. So here we had validated the MatterDoc with the SMART, but we didn't know how it functioned with the Coma Recovery Scale Revised. And that's a really important question because internationally the Coma Recovery Scale Revised is the criterion standard. It's been translated into many different languages Wherever you go in the world, it's usually being used as the uh, measure of awareness on any brain injury rehab unit. So that's a very long answer to the fact that after we published the standardisation results in 2014, really what became apparent immediately was that we, <laughs> we needed to then validate the MatterDoc with the Coma Recovery Scale really to understand you know, we, we knew that the, the MatterDoc was a valid measure of awareness and we know that the Coma Recovery Scale is a valid measure of awareness. What we didn't know was whether the two measures were measuring different aspects of awareness um, and also whether the MatterDoc was going to come up with similar diagnostic outcomes as the Coma Recovery Scale. And for our listeners' benefit, when we're really talking about these scales, I think now would be a good time to pause and kind of talk about these two scales that you looked at in this paper. So kind of break down what is, without going through, you know, extreme detail, what is the Coma Recovery Scale revised? And what are the components that go into that? Sure. Just to stress, first of all, both of these are measures of awareness. We're dealing with people who can't move, can't speak, often they can't see, they've got cognitive problems, and we just don't know what's going on. So they're both behavioural observation scales and the Coma Recovery Scale is a verbal-based neurobehavioural assessment that has six subscales across the domains of motor, visual, auditory, arousal, oromotor and cognition. And we are looking at how the patient performs within that protocol against criteria that are based on authoritative guidelines for what are reflex responses and what might be responses that are indicative of cognitively mediated responses, so responses that would indicate awareness. The MatterDoc is slightly different in that the protocol is a music-based protocol. So we use live music, very occasionally recorded, but largely it's live music, there are 14 items, and again, across all of those domains that we just talked about. However, there's a greater emphasis in the MatterDoc protocol on auditory responsiveness. So the items are more heavily weighted towards auditory responsiveness, which is what makes the MatterDoc distinct from other measures of awareness. And also the nature of the stimuli, the nature of the protocol is entirely different. It's much more nonverbal. And we are using this phenomenal stimulus of music to really elicit responsiveness. That's very well said. And 
both of these are very valuable tools, but it's nice to know kind of how they're a little bit different and then how they, I'm going to use the term rhyme with each other and kind of those things that seem to sync up. So now we kind of understand those two different things that you're going to look at in this study. In the process of building the methods and looking at ways to compare these two, what went into those decisions and how did you actually set up the study to kind of compare these two different types of scales? I'd love to say that there was a more creative process than the one that was used. However, when you're validating a measure, it tends to be a fairly standard type of methodology, as far as I'm aware anyway. What you want to do is you want to have the ideal cohort. So we're looking at convenience sampling. We had three international units that specialised in diagnosis and assessment of adults with prolonged disorders of consciousness, meaning that they'd had a brain injury and they were still in a disorder of consciousness four weeks post-injury. We used convenient sampling and you want to collect data at the same time, as close in time as possible with the same patient and you want to have assessors who are blinded to each other's outcomes. You also want to have assessors who are trained in using that particular assessment or measure and you obviously want to have assessors who are skilled in working with that patient group. So that's a little bit about what dictated the the methods really. And one other aspect that did dictate the methods in this study was that the Matadoc protocol requires or Matadoc Matadoc assessment requires four clinical contacts to produce a diagnostic outcome. Now, the coma recovery scale is certainly used with single contacts, but research has shown that the optimal number of contacts to come up with a diagnosis is five. Mm. So we actually only collected data on four time points so that we could compare the two. And we collected data within a 24-hour period of each other. That makes complete sense. I always ask this question. I'm curious, were there anything in in putting that methods together you didn't expect to be, you know, a sticking point that ended up being a a longer discussion? I find that this question is good for those earlier in their career researchers to know that everyone kind of goes through some stumbles. And I'm curious if you hit any roadblocks in putting this together. Actually, I I just have to say that the clinical sites I worked with were phenomenal. I just want to say that my research collaborators were phenomenal. There was a little tiny stumbling block, which was the international COVID pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) affected many of us. Uh, Very very sadly, we were right near the end of data collection when that happened. So I literally just met with the team in February of 2020 and said, we're nearly there. Let's just push it for another few weeks and we'll get those final numbers. And then, of course, we all shut down. Um, You know, one thing that obviously we know that with research, numbers count. That's what I always say. It's, you know, the numbers really count. And this is the largest study of music therapy with people with disorders of consciousness, to my knowledge. And it must be one of the largest music intervention studies with people with disorders of consciousness. As far as I'm aware, it is. I don't think there's anything larger. We were aiming for a total number of 80, and mm-hmm. that was in line with the study that validated the coma recovery scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we thought 80, we, we didn't necessarily do a power calculation because 
it's always going to be difficult recruiting this particular subgroup, this particular subpopulation. So sub, uh, people with disorders of consciousness or a subpopulation of brain injury, it's mm. really hard to recruit these folk. But, we're, you know, I was well connected with these different units. And so we thought 80 was a pretty handsome number to get and it would give us, you know, really adequate to do good statistical analyses with. But what I failed to think about was that for us to do the sub-analyses that we were really looking for, one of the questions we had was whether the Matadoc items and the coma recovery subscales, function subscales in comparable domains operated differently? Did, did we come up with similar mm-hmm. results or different results? So we wanted to look at auditory with auditory and visual with visual and motor with motor. Now, the, even with a sample, we, we, we did get 74, nearly the eight, nearly the golden 80. Um, we got 74, but even with 74 and a nice mix across the three subgroups of disorders of consciousness, vegetative state, also known as unresponsive wakefulness syndrome, minimally conscious state and emerge from minimally conscious. A nice mix, but even then we didn't have enough numbers to do those subgroup analyses. And I guess that's something I would encourage people to think about just, you know, if you're looking at any of these finer points, if you're looking at any of how the bits work with each other, mm-hmm. then you really need to do an even larger power calculation for, for those bits for looking at the sub-analyses. You kind of led us so well right towards the thing that I think everyone's waiting for is so now that you've collected these 70 or so individuals and you've collected the time points for them and you've compared these two different scales, give us the punchline. What did you find? The punchline, yeah. So the Matadoc is a good companion assessment to the coma recovery scale. More specifically, what we found was that there was fair to borderline moderate agreement for overall diagnostic outcomes, so the end of the four sessions. But what was really interesting was that we had fair to moderate significant agreement for diagnostic outcomes by session, so by clinical contact. It was only fair at the first clinical contact, but this improved to moderate by the fourth clinical contact and also the effect sizes increased over those contacts as well. So the first message here is that agreement between the two improved over the number of contacts. This just highlights the importance of repeated measures with this patient group which we all know because of the nature of the fluctuating states of of this client group but also it uh, there, there were a couple of reasons that we thought this might be going on. I mean, it's possible that just clinicians get to know the, the patients better over repeated contacts. That, that's a big one. But also we just had to ask whether music as a stimulus was eliciting responsiveness earlier than a verbal protocol. So is there something about music, which is certainly what all the research is showing, is there something about music that's actually getting these responses more immediately than a verbal protocol. So that was our first main finding. Looking at this in a bit more depth, oh, and the, the other main finding was that the two scales certainly both have measured the same underlying latent variable, awareness. However, they seem to be doing so in different ways, so having different components. So our main finding there is that 
they're both measuring awareness, but actually if they're used together, we might be getting a fuller picture about the patient's responsiveness than if we just use these separately. So I think what we can say is that the MatterDoc certainly is a good companion piece, particularly because of that auditory component. We know that the standardised assessments for uh, awareness in disorders of conscious, consciousness typically assess auditory awareness through things like clapping in the patient's ear or mm -hmm. using wooden blocks or blowing whistles or at very best playing recorded music. But when we're using live music, we're using a really sensitive stimulus that we can adapt in the moment and using all sorts of devices like music expectation and anticipation, we can really elicit that responsiveness, which is the power of using live music in an assessment. So they were the two main findings. And I, I think for me the biggest takeaway from this research is that the MatterDoc came up with slightly higher diagnostic outcomes. And the question is there, well, maybe it's not as valid as we think it is. But when we looked at this in more detail, what we saw was that the way the two measures, uh, measures of awareness, assess auditory responsiveness or measure auditory responsiveness differ. We've got the coma recovery scale looks at frequency and consistency of responses to auditory stimuli. The MatterDoc looks at consistency and frequency, but it also looks at complexity of response. In one of the items, because we've got more items looking at auditory responsiveness, in one of the items we are looking at duration of response contingent to an auditory stimulus. So it seems that the MatterDoc is measuring auditory responsiveness differently. And also the way that the MatterDoc and the Coma Recovery Scale categorise auditory localization differs. And this is absolutely key and something that, to my shame, I didn't fully understand myself beforehand. I really should have. There's no clear consensus about whether auditory localization is a reflex response or a response that's indicative of higher level of awareness. And in fact, until recently, the meaning of auditory localization for these patients has not been, or the, or the prognostic mm. potential of auditory localization hasn't been really understood or, or examined with, with people with prolonged disorders of consciousness. So the, the coma recovery scale categorizes auditory localization as being a reflex response, meaning the person is categorized as being in a vegetative state or unresponsive wakefulness syndrome condition. However, the MatterDoc categorizes auditory localization as being a higher level response indicating awareness. And again, two important points here. One is that just to remember that the MatterDoc grew out of clinical practice. So that's its great strength. It's also its great weakness. But this grew out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clinical observations. So there's something to be said for that. Similarly, at the same time, we've got recent research published on the Coma Recovery Scale saying that there's been a, a recommendation to revise its categorization of auditory lo localization to be minimally conscious. So there's some affirmation here that perhaps we had this right with the MatterDoc and that when a patient demonstrates auditory localization, that they are indeed showing a higher level of responsiveness. I think that was the really interesting piece for me. And it, 
this paper, like you said, it inadvertently really highlights that difference. And, you know, it, it could be both. It could be either or. There might be a reflexive component to some of the things that the Coma Recovery Scale looks at. But then looking at the Matadoc and how music inevitably is a lot more complex than clapping next to someone's ear and how does someone respond to that is equally as interesting and beneficial potentially to help round out that picture of what's going on in someone that can't engage with us fully. And I think it's a really valuable piece. And you mentioned a long career, but there's so many more questions I'm sure that are stemming off of this for you as well. And this probably isn't the end. No, (laughs) no, because this, I mean, Music and disorders of consciousness is one of the hottest topics, I'd say, in uh, in clinical care. Well, I mean, I'm, I, I, maybe a lot of people would disagree with that, but there's certainly diverse professionals who are really interested in this topic. So there's a lot of neuroscience research that's already taken place and is taking place looking at music with these patients, which is wonderful because it means that we've got the scientific evidence out there and what's going on in the brain. But clinically, there are really important questions I mean, we still have questions about does music elicit responsiveness earlier than non-music stimuli? And this is a really important question. And also, because it's an important question because it means that can we be using music to identify those patients in a vegetative state or a minimally conscious minor state who are showing auditory responsiveness in the absence of other behaviours. And so these might be the patients who are more likely to survive and are more likely to show responsiveness. These are the patients we should be targeting for treatment. And similarly, if the coma recovery scale is identifying patients who are showing auditory responsiveness, then can we be getting music interventions to these people earlier to really try and promote those responses and, and uh, build on the, on those behaviors absolutely many more questions as well i mean one of the questions that we tried to go back and do um, some data mining on was whether diagnostic outcomes of the coma recovery scale started to align more with the matadoc outcomes but we couldn't get enough long-term data to come up with any findings for that from this data set anyway. So that, that's definitely at least one question, but there are many more questions <laughs> to be explored, particularly about, you know, the use of live music versus recorded music. Mm-hmm. You know, if recorded music is just as beneficial, then we've got immediately, you know, protocols we can be mm-hmm. developing easily for family to be using, which is important because family need ways of being with these patients. You know, we need to be giving them tools and ways of being useful and feeling useful and contributing to clinical information on the patient. Um, Absolutely. A a lot of questions. I've really enjoyed our time together, and I think we did a great job outlining, you know, the awesome, wonderful work that you've done. If you're up for it, I just have a handful of lightning round questions to get your quick thoughts on and get to know you a little bit better. Tell me a piece of good advice you've received. Yeah, so a really, really great piece of advice, and I think it may have come actually from Joji Asino, who's sort of like the, you know, one of the, one of the leading researchers for disorders of consciousness, that... We don't need large randomised controlled trials to ask a question, to ask a research question. And sometimes a well-controlled single-subject design can answer the research question better 
than a randomised controlled trial. And if you do, again, enough numbers and get enough subgroups then and introduce some sort of randomised control condition in there, then you can actually also use this data as part of meta-analyses, even though they're not randomised controlled trials in themselves. Excellent point. Next question. Tell me about a thing that I must do if I came to the community where you live. You must admire the gardens. <laughs> Lovely. Any particular botanical gardens or places or just in general, the parks are great? Oh, you mean Philadelphia rather than the immediate community where I live. I, I live yeah. on a converted pier in the, on the oh, river, wow. on the Delaware River, and it's a very unique setting. And we have this magnificent sort of atrium, inner atrium, which is just gorgeous. In Philadelphia, so a lot of people would say that you have to eat a cheesesteak, but <laughs> I, I won't be pushing that. One thing you must do, this is what I get everybody to do, is to go to Independence Hall. It's one of the most important mm. sites in all of America, and it's one of my favorite places to go, and it's just one of the most important places in America. Totally. Um, it's a fun place to visit for sure. Next question. Uh, you find $40 in your suitcase when you go to the ACRM conference you didn't know was there. What would you do with those $40? So I think it would be a round of drinks at the bar for all of my fabulous collaborators. I owe the data collectors so much. So, yeah, definitely drinks drinks on me for the, uh, for the data collectors. <laughs> I like it. Pints around. Another kind of more esoteric question, I guess. Pretend you have a time machine. What does your future self come back to advise you about? Yeah, I think... Do as much, have as much clinical experience as you can. I think getting that clinical experience is absolutely invaluable to be asking the meaningful questions and also to understand the complexities that <laughs> happen when you're trying to do a research study. So really getting as much clinical experience as you can. That's great. Wendy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Okay, I'm really looking forward to sharing this with colleagues who are working in the field, actually. Special thanks to Philip Frobos, who produced this episode. Rehab cast music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Now, I know most probably skipped this closing part when I encourage you to join us at our next national conference, so I will do it in the style of a film noir detective. It was a dark, stormy night when I got the call. A voice on the other end of the line whispered, Come celebrate ACRM's 100th International Rehabilitation Conference in Atlanta later this year. The core ACRM conference will be running from October 30th to November 2nd. It's never too late to register. I took a long look out my window on the rehab unit at the rain and said, And what if I can't make it? The voice chuckled. If somehow you don't manage to make it this year, definitely follow along on social media. We'll be using the hashtag ACRM2023. I hung up the phone and sat back in my chair thinking about the case. It was going to be a great conference. Mm-hmm.